Let's bow in a word of prayer. Father, as we look at your word, we ask you this morning that you would take this narrative, Lord, that's so widely known even among the unsaved in our nation and many others around the world, and we pray, Father, that you would make this fresh, that you would make this applicable, and not just another story, but, Father, that you would make this the living word to hearts of men and women. We thank you for your presence this morning. We thank you, Lord, that you're here, you're with us. We thank you, Lord, that you're moving, and by your Spirit, you're speaking to us. And we just pray this morning, Father, now that you would settle us in your presence. And Lord, you'd bless all who are under the precincts of this house. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Matthew 2 and 2 says that, tells us of the wise men who go to Bethlehem of Judea after leaving Jerusalem. And they say, where is he that is born king of the Jews? Notice the question they ask, where is he? This must be the greatest question a man, a woman, a human being could ever ask when it is in relation to the Lord Jesus Christ. Where is he? Even in your troubles, you feel he's far away. Even in your struggles, you feel you can't go on. Where is he? Because once you set your mind to wonder where he is, then understand it's the Spirit of God moving in you drawing you to seek his face. Times of reflection, times of prayer, reading his word, you're looking for him. Where is he? Greatest question any human being could ever ask of the millions and billions and trillions of questions that may have been asked throughout the ages. Where is he? When it's in relation to the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know the Bible has that term, the exact term, where is? Uh, asking a question quite a number of times. And the first time the actual phrase, where is, is mentioned is found in Genesis chapter 4 and verse 9. Genesis chapter 4 and verse 9 says, And the Lord said unto Cain, Where is Abel thy brother? Notice this time it's the Lord asking after man. Isn't it amazing that in our salvation and anything to do with our redemption, it's always God stooping. It's always God bowing himself down. It's always God coming. It's seeking, searching after the men and women that they would repent of their sin and confess and turn to him. It's always, always off the Lord. Salvation can never be of ourselves. Cain has killed Abel. His blood has been shed in the field and his blood cries unto God as it were. In other words, God's seen the blood that was shed by Cain killing Abel. And he comes to Cain and he says, where is Abel thy brother? And some people might think that God didn't know where Abel was, that Abel was dead, but the, it's the opposite. God had seen everything that had happened. That's what he is like. He is omniscient where he knows all things. He's all-knowing, but he's omnipresent where he is everywhere at once. And he saw the sin of Cain killing his brother Abel. And it wasn't that God, it wasn't that he didn't know, but rather he was giving Cain the opportunity to repent. So if you want to write a little word down beside that verse, Genesis 4, 9, write perpetrator. Cain was the perpetrator of the sin. Now notice this, if Cain is the perpetrator of the sin, then every sinner, God stoops down and asks them, what have you done? But sure you know all about it if you're God. 
every brother or sister who has walked wrong, backslidden, walked away from God, come and confess before me. God comes again in his faithfulness. He could have stayed away and not bothered at all whatsoever. Cain uh, and the rest of humanity could have died with Adam and Eve and, and left them to their own devices. And all of us could have been uh, lost in the, in the, as the seed or genes of Adam. He could have went to, to hell, to a lost eternity, but rather God decided to come in his great mercy. He says, Cain, where is your brother Abel? In other words, tell me what you've done. Confess before me. And if you confess to your sin and you start to do right, you can do that after wrongdoing. Isn't that the wonderful thing of the gospel that in our past lives, when we repent before God, realizing God is saying, where is, where is, where is to you? What have you done? Where have you been? What is your, what is your, your, your status before me? We understand then that God has come and we have repented before him. Our sins are forgiven. And we do right. We walk right before God. So God was asking the perpetrator, the sinner, like you were a sinner and I was a sinner, come before me. And here's the thing. God still speaks to the hearts of men and women at times. And he says, what have you done? Do you see your need of a savior? Do you see the need of my son? And many like Cain, the Lord tells us, Cain, God's word tells us, Cain was off that wicked one. So Cain couldn't even repent because his heart was so hardened and fast and birthed of the devil and toward the wicked things of the devil that he couldn't even repent. He couldn't confess. And so God was justified in sending Cain out. Of course, he went to the land of Nod and built a city. And of course, he would have went and died in his sin. And as I show you that even in, in the gospel, we find that, uh, that, that, that when the Lord says to men and women, you know, here I am, we preach the gospel, we present the gospel, we witness the gospel, we tell of saving grace and God's great love for them, Christ dying on the cross and him commending the love and showing it to man and woman, to, to the human race. And no one, no one can actually receive Christ save the Holy Spirit comes, speaks to them and quickens them. And it shows us then that God is justified in the day of judgment. God is sovereign and he is justified because he knows he has offered his son and man in his hardened heart does not, cannot understand nor accept him. So the first question was asked by God. The perpetrator was asked about repentance. Secondly, it is mentioned where is in Genesis 18 and 9. There's a, there's a reason I'm bringing you here somewhere in Genesis 18 and verse 9, we have three visitors who comes to Abraham in Genesis 18, and they come with a word of, of promise. In other words, he had a promise. First one was the perpetrator. Now we see the man with promise. And we had repentance. Now we see reaffirmation or to reaffirm what God had already promised. And he comes, the three come, and one of them is the Lord Jesus, a pre-Bethlehem appearance of Christ. And he comes and he sits with Abraham and talks with him. And remember, two go on and they're going to destroy Sodom and so on. And Abraham starts to ask the Lord, if there be any righteous, will you spare it? Doesn't it show you that even no matter how small a remnant of God's church is in an area that through fervent prayer and walking in righteousness that we can withhold the judgment of God because God would allow us through his prayers and hearing them that we can withhold, as it were, the judgment of God, that God's will be done. And even Abraham was interceding for Sodom. Abraham was looking that none would perish. 
And God says, in the hardness of their hearts, yet they'll not turn to me, for they're full of sin and idolatry, adultery toward me. I trust this morning we're not talking to a heart that's been hardened, full of sin, adultery. Notice this. The, first, the second question is, the Lord says to Abraham, where is Sarah, thy wife? Where is Sarah, thy wife? Here Abraham's visitors are come to strengthen Abraham's faith in the word of promise which was given to Abraham some 13 years previous. Now, brothers and sisters, we really need to take this on board. We really need to take note of this because Abraham had already had Ishmael by Hagar because 13 years previous, the Lord had said that he would have uh, seed when he was old. He was, he was well past his sell-by date, and so was Sarah. And God would have to do a really big miracle. An impossibility would have to be performed. And faith tells us God does it, but doubting and fear tells us he isn't going to. Now, we need to take the word of promise of God on board here because Abraham had the word of promise. Sarah also had the word of promise. She would be the vessel who would carry this seed. Literal, the word of seed would take a root and bear fruit in Isaac. Thirteen years before that, can you imagine the Lord saying, this is going to happen and the word of the Lord coming and 13 years passes and what happens? We think, well, we forget about it or else we give up on it or we think God has been unfaithful to us. And 13 years has passed because we feel when God gives us a word in season even, a word of promise, that it has to happen that day, that morning, that week, month, or year, or else it's never going to happen at all. But that is not the way God works. God works to his own agenda and his own set times and purpose and his own will. And God said 13 years previous, Abraham, Sarah, not Hagar, Sarah, will bear thee seed. So 13 years later, and this is the third time that the Lord comes to reaffirm. He comes to reaffirm the promise to Abraham and Sarah. Where is Sarah? He says, thy wife. And, and he said, behold, in the tent. Abraham says he's in the tent. And so he tells Abraham within earshot, Sarah is listening of what God's promise was 13 years ago. The message of the promised seed would not be overlooked. I want you to take this on board, brother, sister, that Sarah was not overlooked. Because she was literally the vessel to bear it, she needed extra strength to carry and to deliver and to nurse. Sarah had an utmost importance here Sarah's role in this would be of vital importance. So, brother, at times when we feel we have a promise from God, you need to bring your wife with you and infuse and instill faith in her heart, not only in yourself, but in Christ, that you are a man who's ready to go on with God and trust him no matter what. The wife here, Sarah, she was feeling overlooked. The Lord didn't want to discuss her importance in her absence. Knowing she's within earshot behind the door, God speaks 
the word. Notice this, Genesis chapter 21, if you would just turn for a brief moment with me, please. Genesis chapter 21. Verse 1 says, And the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did unto Sarah as he had spoken. Notice the reaffirmation or the reaffirming of his word there. God did as he said. God instead did as he had spoken. For Sarah conceived and bare Abraham a son in his, in his old age at the set of time. Notice the words, at the, set, at the set time of which God had spoken to him. So God had a set time for this promise to come to pass. God had a set time for this miracle to happen. God had a set time when he would bring this to fruition. And sometimes we feel when our time is past us, we feel that the set time has left us and God has forgotten us. Brothers and sisters, the Lord says his word will not return unto him void. And God said he would do it. God means what he says and he says what he means. And here he brought it to pass and she conceived and had the promised seed as God had said it. Go to Genesis 17 for me. Genesis chapter 17. There was a set time. A set time. Look at Genesis 17, verse 21. When you're reading Genesis 17, 12 times it mentions the word covenant. Most of them are my covenant, God says. I've said it. I'll make the covenant. I've spoken it with you. But Abraham says, but I have no seed. I've only got Ishmael. You haven't given it to me yet. Now, I notice what God says in verse 21, but my covenant will I establish with Isaac, which Sarah shall bear unto thee at this set time in the next year. At this set time in the next year. God was reaffirming the word which he had spoken to Abraham. And he says, there's a set time next year, at this set time, you're going to have the promise coming. Brothers and sisters, can you imagine at their age, and now it's going to be another year down the line, you're thinking, this is never going to happen. It's never going to come to pass. God visits and says, there's another year yet. You and I want it yesterday, don't we? Another year, Lord. He says, there's a sad time. Listen, Paul says of the Lord Jesus, when the fullness of time was come, you see, God sent forth his son. In other words, there was a set time for Christ to come and be born at Bethlehem. And that set time is also given. It was known from before the foundation of the world. But it was given in Daniel chapter 9. You can read it when you go home. Daniel's uh, 49 weeks. And that was the set time. God says, here's the set time. I'm giving Daniel in Babylon the idea of it. And Daniel with the what you would call the magicians there, or the magi. This is where we get Matthew chapter 2. The magi means magician. And these are the, 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 the men of wealth, and the, or, or wisdom rather, and the men of a wealth of knowledge from Daniel's day, and teaching and bringing up, looking even at the very stars. Looking, seeing the gospel, searching out the old scriptures, whatever they can get their hands on at the time. And so now they're coming to visit the Lord Jesus. And here in Daniel chapter 9, the Lord says, at a set time, here's your 49 weeks prophecy. Messiah shall come forth and shall be cut off in the middle of that last year. Notice this. 
Here is a set time for everything. There's a, a, to everything there is a season and a time uh, to everything under the heavens, a, a time to be born and a time to die. There's a time for everything in your life and there's a time in mine. There's a time for joy and there's a time for peace. There's a time for war. There's a time for this. And you read it, Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Everything is a sad time. You know what it shows me? That God is in charge. That God is in control. That our Father is on the throne. That our Father knows every single time of our life. David says, my times are in thine hands. Every time, our times of mourning, our times of distress, our times of worry, our times of fear, our times of fretting, our times of all things that we will go through. So here the Lord says, there's a time. And this time next year, you have to wait. And he comes back again. He says, look, I've told you there's a time. Where's Sarah? Where is Sarah, thy wife? She says, at the tent door, and Sarah laughs. She wasn't laughing. Oh, great, the time has come. She was laughing. You must be joking. Most scholars will tell you that they believe that the wording here is that Sarah was laughing with a disbelief or, a, or even, are you joking me? Me and that old boy? Seriously? A prom at the door? Brother, don't dismiss the wife for she's an important part of all that you are in Christ. Don't dismiss your wife. I said that a while back, I said one day, time I was talking to a trainee minister. His, his wife wasn't anywhere to be seen. Didn't go to church. And I says, you need your wife with you for ministry. The elders need their wife. Deacons need your wife. Ministers need your wife with you. Christian brother, sister, you need your wife. You need them. They're your backbone. They're the ones that when you're weak that they'll encourage you on. Put something into her. Put something into her. Encourage her. Put something into her. Get to yourself and say, here is the faith of God. Let me show you him work in my life. Be the priest of your home. Be the head of your fellowship. And show her that she is as important in the ministry as you are. As a Christian. I can't minister. I couldn't without my wife with me. I wouldn't make it. My wife was my backup. I'm told me, humanly speaking. Times when I'm feeling, falling, when I'm feeling in heart, she's there to lift me up. The third time this is mentioned. The third time this is mentioned is in Genesis 22 and 7. I want to say this to encourage the, the team to put all things online. I'll not mention any names because the person may watch this or listen to this later. 
Someone from the United States contacted me this last week. A German uh, Jew. He's got saved. Saved long ago. Became a missionary to the Muslims. And to the Hindus. And the strength of the woman in her testimony, I can, I'm only getting to know where she's been writing messages to me. She says she stopped listening to a lot of men because everything she was listening to, she needed someone to build her up in faith. And she asked me about um, some of her family, I think it was her grandfather, came with an Anglo uh, Norman name. And, uh, and I'll not mention the names, but she was asking me about these and I was tracing her name for her for being from the States. She says, you know something, I don't know how I found the ministry here of Donna Cloney Elam, but I haven't listened to another man's ministry since my pastor has passed away and he had four satellite stations. And I was a missionary and she mentioned places or whatever she'd done to, to Muslims over in Pakistan and other places. And she says, out there, she says, except for her pastor, she was looking for someone else to put faith into her, to put courage into her, as it were. To, uh, to she also done was read her Bible and wouldn't even read another book. She says, the Hindus tried to burn her alive. The Muslims put her into a barrel. I don't know what they've done with her in the barrel. The Jews spat upon her face. She kept going and she found out she had ovarian cancer. It was inoperable. And she says that it was terminal. She went before God and God completely healed her. She was looking for the depth for someone to put something in her and she was failing as in, in strength and courage and ministry. What do I do? And she decided to stop ministry. She, she gives a whole litany of things that she had been through and many other things. One pastor she worked with was murdered and her, her family died and, and she found the ministry of this house and she said to me last night, after getting to know you this week, I want to let you know, this has set my heart on fire again. I'm going back out to ministry to the Muslim and the Hindus in the Middle East. We must understand, brothers and sisters, that when God places something in you, no matter even if you want to sit at home, sit at ease in Zion, you can't help yourself. He'll always bring it round, even in your weakness. He'll draw it back out of you. She's rejoicing. She says, I've listened to Donna Cloney Elam ministry, so the team at the back can take great hope in this and encouragement in it. She says, I've listened to it as long as my eyes, basically. She says, ours and ours and ours. One after the other, after the other. She says, and this is the only ministry she's listened to in these years because she's had enough. 
to put something of faith into someone, to tell them God is the same, his promise remains the same. Like this lady, this is a, a tremendous encouragement for us, but I think it's tremendous that God has placed it still in modern day people who want to go out like this. We read about it, but where are they all? We read about men and women who, who go out there and who are through so much like this lady, but where are they all in the church today? And this has encouraged me that God is still God and God is still moving and God is still calling and God is still using and God came to Abraham and says, look, it might be 13 years ago from I give you the promise, but my word still stands. It's forever settled in heaven, Abraham, and you will be the father of many nations. And sure it has happened. And yet he even died without seeing the whole fruition of it, but one day in glory he will. There's things we don't understand, brothers and sisters. There's things I don't understand, but this I know is when God tells us something, then God will bring it to pass. The third time it's mentioned is in Genesis 22 and verse 7. We have the propitiation. The perpetrator, the promise, now the propitiation. We had repentance, we had reaffirmation, now we have remission. Genesis 22 and verse 7 here, the seed which was promised to Abraham and Sarah is now a young man. He's gone up a hill by his father, the only promised seed to have a knife placed into him and to be burned to ashes. He says, Take thy son, thine only son, Isaac, whom thou lovest, and go to Mount Moriah and offer him there for a burnt offering unto me. Notice this. Abraham takes him. And it says in 22 and verse 7, Isaac says, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Here again is a type of Christ. Where is the lamb? And Abraham says, The Lord will provide himself. Notice, the himself. He'll provide not a lamb for himself, not another substitute. The Lord will provide himself. Jehovah Jireh, the Lord is there. The Lord will be there to provide for us. Notice here is a type of Christ. Where is the lamb? Abraham's fear of loss was overcome by his faith in God. Brothers and sisters, now, uh, let's take this home with us. Abraham's fear of loss was overcome by his faith in God. Do you know what rules your heart? Fear, unless it's full of faith. And if you don't get your heart full of faith and you leave room open for fear, then the devil will come in and he will seek to steal, to kill, and to destroy from you. He'll turn your mind against God, first of all. He'll turn your mind away from the love of Christ. And then he'll turn your mind away from the love of all around you to the love of the world. Fear of loss was overcome by his faith in God. When you go home, we have in time, read Hebrews chapter 11, verses 17 to 19. And it speaks of, and Isaac shall thy seed be called. So here's the thing, when he goes up to slay Isaac, to offer him up for an offering, his only son whom he loves. What a test. Notice, either one, Abraham believed God will provide the substitute, as he said, and or two, as Hebrews 11 will tell you, he believed that God would raise him from the dead. How could a man believe that God would raise him from the dead if he had no other 
uh, example to go by, maybe. What example have you, Abraham? Take us an example. He raised a barren womb. He raised a man's functioning. He made a creative miracle. And through the process of their natural ways, he made the promised seed come to pass. That which was dead, barren, he brought to life. And here he says, Lord, you said, he is the promised seed of my many nations. It's in Isaac, shall my seed be called. It's in him. And if I kill him, and if I put a knife in him, and his blood runs out, and I, I, I burn him upon the, the wooden altar, and Lord, he comes to, to dust and to ashes, then I know you'll still raise him from the dead. Because you can't lie. You've already told me I waited 13 years. My, my, uh, my, my mentality went, my faith went a little, and I went with Hagar thinking I'll give God a helping hand, and he made things worse. That's where we get the Arabs from today. He says, but nevertheless, your word still came to pass, so you'll raise him from the dead. So Abraham knew that I'm going to do this and as much as I don't want to see my son take his last breath and I don't want to hurt him and I don't want to see him look at that look in his eyes, why, daddy, have you done this to me? Do you know what, brothers and sisters, when the father looked upon his son, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He looked at him. And Christ looked, as it were, at his father with the same look. Why? There are many questions we can ask why, but we don't understand. Many questions. But we must trust God's bigger plan. Next, we look at the person. The, the propitiation was the, the, the mercy seat where the blood was sprinkled for mercy. Here's our mercy that it's found. Where is the Lamb? John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God, taketh away the sin of the world. So then we have the person, the man and the woman. Job 14 and 10 says, But man dieth and wasteth away, yea, man giveth up the ghost. And where is he? Where is he? He speaks of the afterlife. We had remission, now we have recognition. Recognizing that there is an afterlife. And where we spend eternity will matter in what we do in this life. Not do for works, but what we do with Christ. We go back to Cain. Where is Abel thy brother? Repent, confess. And what we do in this life will matter when we say, Lord, here I am. Then we have Paul says of Christ and his coming in Job 14 and, uh, uh, sorry, taken from Job 14 and 10. He says in 1 Corinthians 15 and 55, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? Speaking of the resurrection. Here's Abraham's resurrection. This is Christ's resurrection. And then 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 4, we have the parousia of Christ and the restitution of all things. People say to us today, where is the promise? Here's the promise again of his coming. Where's the promise of Christ's second coming? It hasn't come yet. So they lose faith, they lose heart, they lose hope. 
Where is his promise? Abraham says, where is the promise? 13 years have passed, and now you're telling me it's going to be another year? Where is the promise? So in Matthew chapter 2 and verse 2, the wise men asked, where is he? And no questioner is wiser than asking, where is he when it's in relation to Christ? This man-child who is born is the Son of God. This man-child is the priest to confess our sin to. This man-child is the promise seed of the Father. This man-child is the propitiation of our sins, and he's the parousia that we look for. The wise man were wise indeed. They saw Jesus, and wise men still do. I saw that. I'm sure you maybe you have saw it somewhere. I saw something like that on a bumper sticker of a car. And that's what I was thinking of when I read that. They arrive in Jerusalem, brothers and sisters. They arrive in Jerusalem. Uh, and Jerusalem, when you get down to the, the root meaning of it, means set ye double peace. It's a city of peace it's meant to be, but it's set ye double peace. So these wise men go to Herod first in verse 3. And then we're told Herod was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. Double peace became double trouble. Herod and all Jerusalem. Herod and all Jerusalem. Double peace became double trouble. And then, of course, it showed that true peace, real contentment is only found in the Lord Jesus. The city of peace became the city of trouble because of one tyrant who was Herod. And yet, John 14 and 27 the Lord Jesus says, Peace I leave with you, my peace give I unto you. Not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. And our peace comes from one Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now notice this. The wise men went on to Bethlehem of Judea. Bethlehem means house of bread. House of bread. Everything in Scripture is there for a reason. Everything you read is there for a reason. House of bread and Judea comes from the word Judah. That was the, the area of Judea. It comes from the word Judah. And that's where you get the, the derivative word for, it was the Ju, Ju, uh, Judahites, where you get the, the word then came known. It was more of a nickname, if you want, if I can put it in that sense, called Jews from. So when, where is he that is born king of the Jews? They were saying, where is he that is born the king out of Judah? The tribe of Judah, the lion of the tribe of Judah. I notice this. The wise men went to Bethlehem, the house of bread, and they came to Judea. Judah means praise. Judea means he shall be praised. He shall be praised. Was it any wonder when they come into this place, they say, where is he? Where is Jesus? Where is this promise? Where is this seed of God? Notice they didn't take their task lightly. They didn't stop at a false peace they didn't look at Jerusalem and accept it because of its, as it were, excuse the, uh, the terminology, the bright lights, big city, and say, well, sure, we'll stay here because it looks better and it's a nice big city and surely he'll come here. No, brothers and sisters, they didn't accept it because it was false. They didn't accept its temple. They looked past it all and it, they didn't accept anything that came out of a so-called king's mouth. They had to find the Christ. They had to go in search of him and they said, where is he? And of course we know the scribes bring out Micah 5 and 2. We later read then of the shepherds in Luke 2 and 13. 
uh, it says in, uh, in verse 14, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men, the angelic host are praising. House of bread, Christ says, I am the bread of life. House of praise, they come praising him in Judea. That's where the angel starts to show Bethlehem of Judea. They start praising him. See how everything in the Bible comes together. God was really showing them. And a star, they followed a star. Now, brothers and sisters, I'm going to be honest with you. I don't believe it was an alignment of planets at all. There may have been, but I didn't believe that's what they saw. I believe it was the Holy Spirit and a cloud of glory or a shining light that came. And what big star bigger than our sun can hang over a house? Sure, you had to dwarf our planet, never mind a house. Like the pillar of fire at night and the pillar of cloud over the house. They followed, they seen an alignment of stars, maybe, but they followed this Holy Spirit. Only the Holy Ghost can bring you to Christ. Only the Holy Ghost can bring you to Christ. I want to say it again, brothers and sisters, only the Holy Ghost can bring you to Christ because it's only the Holy Ghost who can show you Christ. And they followed. Let the Holy Ghost lead you further to Christ, deeper into Christ. I finish, brothers and sisters. Thank you for your attention. You and I cannot, should not, must never settle for a counterfeit gospel, a counterfeit peace, or a counterfeit spirit. Listen, smoke and mirrors, lights, camera, action, pomp, ceremony, cannot, will not, should never substitute or be tried to substitute the presence of the Holy Spirit or Christ in the midst. And the church is full of let's substitute God with technology and all the wonderful things it can show us. Let's put smoke out, make it look like it's something. We don't need we don't need anything but the Spirit of God. All we need is the Holy Spirit, and He will bring us further into Christ. All we need is the Holy Spirit in our meetings, in our assembly, in our lives, and He'll direct us right into the place where Christ is dwelling in His abode. We don't need anything else. Listen, brothers and sisters, we don't even need this building. We can meet in a field. We can meet in a tent. We can meet in a barn. We can meet out in a car park. The church is you and I. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit is in us and we corporately gather together and the corporate anointing is flowing, we are showing Christ in the midst. And it's that is what we need, not just at a, a Christmas morning so-called ceremony, or not just at some sort of, a, 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 of an altar, but we have Christ in our midst every day of our lives. Notice what they say. Glory to God in the highest angels cry and on earth, peace. The wise men pursued all the way to Bethlehem and Judea, to the house of bread where he shall be praised. He is God's manna, the bread of life and the bread of God. And he is the praise of the heavenly host and the praise of the redeemed. Where is he? They come and they say. 
you know when the shepherds are out in the field? We think, well, they're just shepherds. No. You see, again, everything is for a reason. The Bible says it for a reason. God showed himself to the shepherds for a reason. The shepherds were out in the field because they watched the sheep watching their flock by night in case of danger, but they watched the sheep from they were born very carefully there on the hillsides of Judea because they looked for spotless lambs for sacrifice. And they had to watch their little lambs that no danger came or harm or hurt because they couldn't be used in the temple. And these shepherds are believed to have been hired, as it were, by the temple to bring in the lambs for the sacrifice. And we're told around Micah chapter 4. I'll do a study. I haven't time now. Obviously, time's gone. And there, there was, the shepherds had what was known as a tower. A tower. T-O-W-E-R. And there was a tower there. And the room below, it was a, a barn, if you want. Or, or it was a room where they brought the sheep into at night and brought cattle maybe into at night as well, but especially sheep. And they had a tower where one shepherd could overlook the landscape and see where the sheep were. In Micah chapter 4, might be wrong, but I think it's about verse 8 or so, talks about this. I might be wrong, but it's in Micah 4 off the top of my head. And the idea, we think it's this wee innkeeper and he comes out and, you know, it's like a and b and there's my barn there, sleeping there in this nice corrugated iron. I don't know what you think it's like. But many believe it was this tower prophesied off and told off in Micah chapter 4. And underneath it, they had their sheep. They wrapped their sheep in swaddling clothes to save them from hurting themselves while they're just born. They make sure their legs are perfectly straight for the temple sacrifice. Why was Christ wrapped in swaddling clothes and laid in a manger? Because he was the Lamb of God. When the angels came and said, Behold, there's a lamb. He's in Bethlehem. They knew where to run. Knew where they went? They ran back to the tower where their lambs were. And there he was like a lamb wrapped up in swaddling clothes, led in a manger. Brothers and sisters, let's remember the promise of God. He's not through yet, and he'll always keep his word. God bless his word to us this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.